Last time we spoke about the fall of Shaggy Ridge, some hardcore patrolling on New Britain, and major planning for the invasion of the Marshall Islands. The Australians seized the Kankiri Saddle, the Protheros, Crater Hill, and countless other features until finally at last, the Japanese had been dislodged from the area. Meanwhile, over on New Britain, the Americans were expanding their perimeter and unleashing wave after wave of patrols, trying to figure out where the Japanese were concentrating. It was tireless work, without any good maps in a horribly difficult climate, with menacing terrain. The commanders of the Central, South, and Southwest Pacific areas all met to finalize some very big plans that would now involve the invasion of the Marshall Islands. It seems Dougie Boy MacArthur would be delivered some setbacks to his grand advance to the Philippines, as the Central Pacific was now stealing the driver's seat. This episode is Operation Flintlock, the invasion of the Marshall Islands. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. Before we begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you were still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there I just released part two in my Kanji Ishiwata series, Banshu Kuo, How to Build a Puppet State. That four-part series used to be exclusive to my Patreon, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. And over at my Patreon, you can find exclusive podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast was me answering the question, why did the Japanese perform so many atrocities during World War II? Check it out. In spite of General Douglas MacArthur's attempt at hijacking the strategic control over the Pacific Campaign, by trying to have the United States Navy's Central Pacific Campaign pretty much be aborted, it didn't really pan out. MacArthur had made multiple arguments against their central plans, stating Nimitz's choice of route was, quote, Time-consuming and expensive in our naval power and shipping. And that was really a self-serving argument, flying in the face of actual evidence. MacArthur pointed out all the problems faced during the invasion of Tarawa, such as the high casualty rates. The Marines had jumped 2,500 miles from New Zealand to hit Tarawa at the cost of four days of fighting. Yet, Australian soldiers and American GIs would take nearly a year and a half through nearly continuous fighting to make the 300-mile journey from Port Moresby to Medang. Operation Cartwheel proved to be extremely laborious, time-consuming, and costly in terms of materials and men. But from MacArthur's point of view, the lives lost were largely Australian, and perhaps, as some historians might point out, were, quote, were politically expendable to a person like MacArthur. And I gotta say, that's a hell of a hot point to make. And that one comes from Francis Pike's Hirohito's War. It's a very good book, by the way. 
but please go after him and not me, folks. It was also self-evident that the supply lines of ships from the west coast of the United States to Nimitz's Pacific Fleet and the Marines, some 5,000 or so miles from San Diego to Kwajalein Atoll, was quite a bit shorter than the long route going from the United States west coast to Australia and then to New Guinea. That was a colossal 9,108-mile trip. By mid-1943, the supply line to MacArthur was nearly double that of Nimitz in distance, with increased dangers of IGN submarines prowling about. Though, as I have said numerous times, the IGN only really figured out the capability of merchant hitting in the later years of the war. Well, in spite of all of that, MacArthur gave Brigadier General Frederick Osborne and MacArthur's trusty lackey Sutherland a trip over to Washington to try and fight on his behalf, going against the Chiefs of Staff, but the Chiefs of Staff elected to commit themselves to the Central Pacific Thrust. It had been a strategic decision based on logistical necessities and strategy, so just basically logic. The 1943 Cairo Conference ended just as Tarawa was captured, thus driving the nail in the coffin, as they say. The next target on the way to the Marianas was thus the Marshall Islands. Way back in the old days, they were the property of the German Empire, that Japan had stolen with ease during World War I. Ever since 1938, the Japanese banned any non-Japanese ships from the region. Thus, U.S. intelligence was pretty lax on them. Magic intercepts began to give clues as to how the Japanese deployed their troops on the Marshall Islands, however. This led the Allied war planners to leave some to wither on the vine, like what ye. It was decided the main target would be Kwajalein. The 380-mile lagoon made it one of the largest in the world, quite beautiful also. Some, like Rear Admiral Turner, questioned the risks of going straight into the heart of the Marshall Islands, calling the move, quote, too aggressive and dangerous and reckless. But Nimitz and Spruance were adamant, though this was before Tarawa. The bitter lessons learned on Tarawa prompted Spruance to determine that, quote, Kwajalein would be struck with violent, overwhelming force, and swiftly applied. For the invasion of the Marshals, codenamed Operation Flintlock, the first phase was to be the capture of Kwajalein, earmarked by General Corlett's 7th Division against the southern group of islands in the atoll. That included Kwajalein. General Schmidt's 4th Marine Division would capture Roy Namer and the northern islands in the atoll. Furthermore, prior to these attacks, Colonel Sheldon Sundance's landing force would hit the Majuro Atoll. Because of the experiences gained during the invasion of the Gilberts, a far greater quantity and variety of amphibious equipment had been made available to the Central Pacific forces. Now the attack force commanders would not have to rely on the faulty communication systems of battleships to maintain proper radio liaison between ship and shore and ship and air. Two newly constructed headquarters ships, each equipped with the latest developments in radio and radar gear and unburdened by gunfire support duties, were provided for the operation. Several improvements were also made in the techniques of softening up the enemy defenses before the first troops touched shore. The U.S. Navy changed their bombardment tactics based on the experience at Tarawa and now used armor-piercing shells and fired from closer ranges. All added up, this would increase the quantity and accuracy of firepower to be delivered before the invasion. To provide a last-minute saturation of the beaches, two new or rather modified forms of older types of amphibious equipment were also introduced. 
The first of these was the amphibian tank LVT, Type A, which was just the standard amphibian tractor, equipped with extra armor plating, and now mounted with a 37mm gun housed in a turret. The second was the LCI gunboat, an LCI converted into a gunboat by the addition of three 40mm guns and banks of 4.5-inch rocket launchers. Admiral Turner's plan called for extensive pre-landing bombardment, both from the surface ships and from aircraft. Most of the Marshall's airfields had been successfully neutralized by Admiral Hoover's aircraft over the prior months. To complete preliminary operations, Admiral Mitchell's fast carrier force launched a heavy strike on January the 29th and 30th. On the 30th, eight of Mitchell's battleships, accompanied by a dozen destroyers, were to deliver a dawn bombardment against Kwajalein Island and then Roy Namer. The object was to destroy aircraft, coastal defense guns, and personnel, and to render the airfields temporarily useless. At the same time, two advance units of cruisers and destroyers from Turner's task force were to bombard the airfields at Wotye and Maliolap. These dawn bombardments were to be followed up by airstrikes against each of the objectives. After the strikes were completed, the surface ships would again take up the bombardment and maintain a steady fire until about noon. Then on the 31st, initial landings would begin against Carlson, lying northwest of Kwajalein Island, then Ivan and Jacob Islands, lying southwest of Roy Namer. For southern Kwajalein, three other small islands in addition to Carlson were to be captured during the preparatory phase of the operation. These were Carlos, Carter, and Cecil Islands. They were all lying north of Carlson. On some of these islands, artillery could be emplaced for the main assault. On February the 1st, battleships, cruisers, and destroyers would conduct a monster bombardment in support of the main landings, and airstrikes would begin 45 minutes before the men hit the beaches. There would be a cease to the carnage 25 minutes before to allow the smaller islands to deploy their artillery to help support the main assault. With this tremendous bombardment by aircraft, surface ships, and artillery, all to be executed before the first troops hit the shoreline, it was hoped that the bitter experience of Tarawa would not be repeated. For the attack on Kwajalein Island, Corlett decided to land on a narrow front of beaches at the western extremity, as the reef and surf conditions were more favorable there. He had at his disposal 79 amphibian tanks and 95 amphibian tractors that would transport the first four waves to hit the southern beaches. The first with great secrecy would be a pre-dawn landing against Carter and Cecil Islands by one platoon of the 7th Cavalry Reconnaissance Troop. The reconnaissance troop was earmarked on two high-speed transports, along with two platoons of Company B, the 111th Infantry. After this, the 17th Regiment, led by Colonel Wayne Zimmerman, would land on Carlos and Carlson Islands. The 1st Battalion, 17th Infantry, would hit Carlos, while the 2nd Battalion, 17th Infantry, would hit Carlson. The 3rd Battalion, 17th Infantry, was to be held in reserve, ready to go to the aid of either landing team. While the capture of Carlson Island was in progress, the divisional artillery, loaded for the most part on amphibious trucks, was to debark and proceed to a rendezvous area offshore. Upon a signal from the commander of the Carlson Landing Force, the guns were to be moved ashore and into position. This was all to be done to secure General Arnold's artillery, whom on the night of D-Day, along with 145th Field Artillery Battalions, would deliver interdictory fire from Carlson, on all the principal fortified areas of Kwajalein Island, and place counter-battery fire on any enemy artillery that might be emplaced on Burton. 
They were also to fire general support missions for the infantry. Finally, the 184th on the left and the 32nd Regiment on the right would land abreast and advance upon the axis of the island. If things looked like they were going very well, and the reserve 17th Regiment would not be necessary, they would instead capture the remaining islands of Beverly, Berlin, Benson, and Bennett on the eastern chain. Now, there was a hell of a lot of firepower they would face as well. On Kwajalein Island, four 12.7-centimeter dual-purpose twin-mounted guns were divided into batteries of two, one located at each end of the island. Each battery was protected by 7.7-millimeter and 13-millimeter machine guns along the nearby beaches. Near each gun were two 150-centimeter searchlights. In addition, the northern end of the island was guarded by a twin-mount dual-purpose 13-millimeter machine gun on the lagoon shore. Several 7.7mm machine guns were in position on the western end, and other heavy machine guns were scattered about the central part of the island, some being mounted on wooden sleds for easy movement to critical points. On the ocean shore were six 8cm dual-purpose guns, divided into two batteries of three guns each. One battery was east of the tank ditch, and others were opposite of the center of the airfield. The first had a 360-degree traverse, and could fire either to seaward or landward. The other formed the nucleus of a strong point composed of a semicircle of rifle pits facing the beach supported by one heavy and one 13mm machine gun. There was also an observation tower, a rangefinder, and a 110cm searchlight. Two other 8cm guns were in position on the lagoon shore, and a blockhouse was on the main pier called Knob Pier, which jutted out into the lagoon near the northern tip of the island. It had a 13mm dual-purpose gun on its roof and firing ports on the ground, allowing for machine guns to fire in all directions. For the attack on Roynamer, Schmidt's first phase was to capture the five inlets near Roynamer. The Ivan Landing Group was commanded by Brigadier General James Underhill, consisting of the 25th Marines under Colonel Samuel Cumming. He would have at his disposal the 14th Marines Artillery and Company D of the 4th Tank Battalion as well. They would seize Jacob and Ivan Islands to allow the 3rd and 4th Battalions of the 14th Marine Regimental Artillery to deploy. They would also hit Albert, Allen, and Abraham Islands, where the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 14th Marine Regimental Artillery would deploy. For the main landings, Schmidt chose to perform a orthodox amphibious maneuver, simply landing two regiments abreast on the broad front over the lagoon shore. The 23rd Marines would also hit Roy's Red Beach 2 and 3, and the 24th Marines would hit Namur's Green Beaches 1 and 2. The third and final phase would see the capture of the remaining islands in the northern Quage Lines. Now all of that was for the Americans, but what about the Japanese defenders? Admiral Akiyama had recently been reinforced with a number of IGA units such as the 3rd South Seas Garrison from Wake, the 1st South Seas Detachment from Mille and Jalut, and the 1st Amphibious Mobile Brigade from Eniwitak. The reinforcements were deployed mostly on the periphery, as Quajaline, Jalut, Maliolap, and Watye had sizable naval garrisons already. The hub of the Japanese military in the Marshalls was at Quajaline, and its main airbase at Roy. If you would pull out a map, which I do hope many of you do during these uh, very complicated podcasts I do, because I, I just I can't even imagine some of you not pulling out a map when it comes to especially New Guinea. It's an absolute nightmare, I know. Well, if you pull out a map, you will see that Kwajalein lies far to the west, with Jalut, Mille, Mariolap, 
and Watye kind of acting as buffers. If you were a Japanese commander, you would most likely assume any invasion attempt would hit the outer islands first, and leave something like Kwajalein as the last one to be taken. A literal quote from one of the commanders, Chikataka Nakajima, made this point. There was divided opinion as to whether you would land at Jalut or Mille. Some thought you would land on Watye, but there were a few who thought you would go right to the heart of the marshals and take Kwajalein. The three most heavily defended islands were Roy Namur, Kwajalein, and Burton, in that order. The defenses of Roy Namur were organized around a series of seven strong points, four on Roy, three on Namur, all on the ocean side. Starting from the southwest tip of Roy, the first was located along the southern shore of the western coast. The second and third were to the south and north of the northwest taxi circle. The fourth was on both sides of the wire and stone barriers next to the northeastern taxi circle. The 5th, 6th, and 7th were on the northwest, north, and eastern tips of Namur, respectively. From the lagoon side of the approaches were covered mostly by nothing heavier than 7.7mm machine guns. Wire entanglements were found at two points on the beach, around the northeast taxi circle, on Roy, and the narrow bit of land connecting Roy with Namur. The beach around the northeastern taxi circle also boasted a tank obstacle in the form of uh, large rocks jutting out of the rock wall. Anti-tank ditches had been dug throughout the two islands. On Kwajalein, there was a concrete seawall along most of the ocean shore and around the northern and western ends of the island. The section of the northern end had posts set up to it, probably tacked as a tank barricade. East of the area cleared for the airfield was a tank ditch extending halfway across the island, and three smaller tank ditches ran between the ocean shore and the road to the vicinity of the airfield. The lagoon shore was protected by two standard barbed wire fences at the water's edge. The large tank ditch was supported by trenches, rifle pits, and machine guns. Now, at this point in the war, the Japanese tactical doctrine still stressed the beach line defense that would hinder a proper defense in depth. The Japanese doctrine to fortify beaches would gradually change as a result of the Gilbert Marshall's campaign. IGA General HQ research groups abandoned beach defenses for internal defenses to thwart naval and aerial bombardments, but also to favor concealed positions to thwart flamethrower and grenade attacks. And honestly, just to sidetrack a little bit here, there was a book I read uh, when I was in my university days, The Battle for Okinawa, by Colonel Hiromichi Yahara. If you were interested in how some of the Japanese commanders decided to change to a defense in depth, Colonel Yahara was a good case study, and the book is quite interesting. Akiyama had roughly 5,000 men on Kwajalein. 930 of these were IJ units, the 1st Company, 3rd Mobile Battalion, plus the 2nd and 4th Companies of the 2nd Mobile Battalion of the 1st Amphibious Mobile Brigade. The IJ forces were led by Colonel Asu Tarokichi, commander of the 2nd Mobile Battalion. There were also 250 SNLF of the Yokozuna 4th. 1,150 naval troops from the 61st Guard Unit and Akiyama's headquarters. The rest were not considered combat effective, mostly comprising laborers and logistical units. Most of these units were at Kwajalein itself, with some 345 troops and over 2,000 air personnel of the 24th Air Flotilla at Roy Namur. Three lookout stations were also established on Bennett, Carter, and Carlos Islands, while an air unit of the 952nd and 160 men defended Burton. 
By January the 20th, all the preparations were complete in the Hawaiian Islands for the grand invasion of the Marshals. Two days later, the task force departed. At dawn on the 29th, the four task groups of Task Force 58 and the Neutralization Group arrived to their first assembly position with aircraft carriers Enterprise, Yorktown, and Bella Wood successfully neutralizing Tarawa, while Essex, Intrepid, and Cabot bombed and strafed Rhinamar. Aircraft from Essex, Intrepid, and Cabot bucked northeasterly winds to bomb and strafe once more against the important airfields at that base. 92 enemy planes were based on Roy Airfield when the attack developed. Command over the air was seized by the American planes from the very offset, and after 8 a.m., no enemy planes would be seen airborne over Roy Namur. Numerous hits were made on the runways, hangars, fuel dumps, and gun positions. Additionally, carriers Saratoga, Princeton, and Langley sent multiple strikes against Watye, managing to neutralize its airfield. Finally, Admiral Sherman's carriers Cowpens, Monterey, and Bunker Hill launched successful strikes against Line. Her airfield and buildings were bombed on the first strike, and then she was subjected to strafing and bombing. During the evening, Admiral Sherman's group moved northwest towards Eniwetok to get in position to launch an attack at dawn on D-1. It was not just the Navy that smashed the Marshals. The Army also got their taste. At Quajaline, one flight of seven B-24s dropped 15 tons of bombs on Roy Namur and three more tons on Quajalan Island during the morning and early afternoon. As the carrier planes retired at dusk, another seven heavy bombers arrived for a night attack, dropping 20 tons of bombs on Quajalan Island. At Watye, flying through heavy overcast, one flight of three B-24s dropped seven tons of bombs, causing fires and damaging runways. A few hours later, a flight of nine B-25s dropped three tons of bombs on the island in a low-level attack and strafed and sank a small cargo vessel in the lagoon. During this late attack, carrier planes from the task force mistakenly intercepted the B-25s and shot down two before they realized they were American planes. Malilolap, Jalut, and Mille also received land-based attacks during the day. At Taroa, two and a half tons of bombs were dropped by B-25s, which then joined carrier planes in strafing the island. At Jalut, attack bombers and fighters dropped seven tons of bombs and afterwards strafed the island. Mille was covered all day by 20 fighters flying in flights of four. Planes that had been scheduled to strike these targets, but that were unable to get through because of bad weather or mechanical difficulties, flew over Mille on the way back to American bases in the Gilberts and dropped their bomb loads over the island's atoll. The neutralization group shelled Watye and Maliolap, leaving the last operational airfield on Eniwitak. Sherman's fighters and bombers hit the atoll during the morning of the 30th, destroying nearly every building and runway, though a few aircraft managed to escape. The rest of the day would see more carrier strikes and surface bombardments against the Marshall's atolls, while the landing forces made their final approach towards Quajalain. Meanwhile, Admiral Hill's attack group detached from the main task force heading for Majora Atoll. At 11 p.m., First Lieutenant Harvey Weeks led a recon platoon on rubber boats to Kaolin Island, becoming the first Americans to land on any territory the Japanese had possessed prior to World War II. The rest of the recon company, led by Captain James Jones, landed on Dallop. Liga and Derrid Islands. Finally, at Majuro Island itself, they would find the Japanese had abandoned the atoll, perhaps over a year earlier. At the same time, Sheldon's landing force occupied Darrett and Dallop without any opposition, as the 1st Defense Battalion soon arrived to take up garrison duties. To the northwest, the destroyer transports Overton, carrying Troop A, 
and Manley carrying Troop B raced past Turner's task force to hit Carter and Cecil Islands. Troop B successfully landed on Carter at 6.20 a.m., rapidly securing the island after killing 20 of her defenders. Troop A, however, landed on Chauncey Inlet at 5.45 a.m., and upon realizing they had landed at the wrong island, they left a detachment of 61 infantrymen, and then they re-embarked at 9.29 a.m. Finally, Troop A landed on Cecil Island at 12.35, finding zero opposition there. On Chauncey, however, the Americans discovered a force of over 100 Japanese hidden in the inlet center. Half of the enemy force was killed, but the Americans would eventually have to withdraw after losing two men. The desperate Japanese would continue to resist until eventually being annihilated a few days later. With the lagoon's entrance secured, Colonel Zimmerman transferred his two assault battalions to amphibious tractors and sent them towards Carlos and Carlson Islands. While Quajan Line, Burton, and Everly Islands were under heavy bombardment, the 1st Battalion's 17th Regiment landed at Carlos unopposed at 9.10 a.m. From there, they quickly attacked the 25-man garrison. To their south, the 2nd Battalion landed on the northeastern end of Carlson at 9.12 a.m. under some heavy artillery fire coming out of Quajalan that was quickly suppressed by air and naval bombardment. The men expected fierce resistance, but the Japanese fled, leaving only 21 Koreans to be taken prisoner. And honestly, that's a pretty good outcome for those poor Koreans. Then General Arnold landed his five artillery battalions who got their guns ready by nightfall. Further north, Brigadier General James Underhill began operations against Ivan and Jacob Islands to secure even more artillery positions. After the preparatory bombardment, the Marines got aboard their aim tracks with a lot of difficulty. Before the operation, landing team commanders had estimated their debarkation intervals would be about 60 minutes, but this did not pan out. Once the troops were loaded in their assigned landing craft, they had to make their way through some very choppy seas to the LST area for transfer to amphibian tractors. At this juncture, all semblance of control broke down. Landing craft were about two hours late in reaching the LST area. Choppy seas and headwind were partly responsible for the delays. Boat control officers left the tractors in frantic search for the landing craft and they failed to return in time to lead the LVTs to the line of departure. Tractors were damaged or swamped while milling around their mother LSTs, waiting for the troops to show up. Radios in the LVTs were drowned out. One LST weighed anchor and shifted position before completing the disembarkation of all of its tractors. The elevator on another broke down, so that those LVTs loaded on the topside deck could not be disembarked on time. To summarize, almost every conceivable mishap occurred to delay and foul up what under even the best of circumstances, was a pretty complicated maneuver. Despite the issues, by 9.17 a.m., the aim tracks were surging forward while LCI gunboats fired rocket barrages. B Company of the 25th Marines hit Jacobs at 9.52, easily overrunning the island within 15 minutes. Ivan Island had a much rougher surf alongside a bad reef that would slow down the aim tracks. Company D, 4th Light Tank Battalion, managed to land at 9.55 a.m., while Company C of the 25th Marines landed on the opposite side of the shore at 10.15 a.m., followed by Company A. They linked up and began advancing inland, rapidly destroying a token defense force and securing the entire island by 11.45. During the early afternoon, the 3rd Battalion, 14th Marines, landed at Jacob Island aboard LVTs, while the 4th Battalion landed at Ivan aboard LCMs. At this point, the lagoon entrance was secured, so the 2nd and 3rd Battalion's 25th Marines re-embarked to land on Albert and Allen. Rough seas delayed them, 
but the Marines were once again on the move. LCI gunboats performed rocket barrages as the 3rd Battalion landed on Albert at 3.12, and the 2nd Battalion hit Allen three minutes later. Both inlets were quickly cleared, while G Company landed on an unoccupied Andrew Island. The 3rd Battalion then assaulted Abraham Island at 6.24, securing it by 7.15. With all of that, the Americans had secured a chain surrounding Roynamer, and the first phase of the operation was now done. Now the Americans would perform the main landings. Late during the night, Arnold's artillery and Turner's warships bombarded Quagelon and Burton while three destroyers kept up a barrage upon Roynamer. Under the cover of darkness, frogmen of the Underwater Demolition Team 1 scouted Roynamer and UDT-2 scouted Quagelon's beaches. These men made sure there were no obstacles or mines in the way of their landing objectives. This was the first use of UDTs during the Pacific War. Early on February the 1st, Quagelon was hit with an unprecedented amount of bombardment. During one period, two shells per second were hitting specific targets or areas in the path of the assault troops. The 14-inch naval shells of the battleships were most effective in piercing and destroying reinforced concrete structures. From the cruisers and destroyers, 8-inch and 5-inch shells plowed through bunkers and tore up a lot of vegetation like palm trees. Altogether that day, nearly 7,000 14-inch, 8-inch, and 5-inch shells were fired by supporting naval vessels at Quagelon Island alone, and the bulk of these were expended against the main beaches before the landing. The field artillery on Carlson also joined in the preparatory fire. Its total ammunition expenditure against Quagelon was about 29,000 rounds. The result of all of this expenditure of explosives was devastating. The damage was so intensive that it was impossible to determine the relative effectiveness of the three types of bombardment. The area inland of Red Beaches was reduced almost completely to rubble. Concrete emplacements were shattered, coconut trees smashed and flattened, the ground pocked marked with large craters, coral ripped to splinters. From the carrier's enterprise, Yorktown, Bellawood, Manila Bay, Corregidor, and the Coral Sea, 18 dive bombers and 15 torpedo bombers struck the western part of Quagelon Island while as many fighters strafed the area with machine guns and rockets. Altogether, 96 sorties were flown from the carriers in support of the troop landing on Quagelon Island alone. And as one observer reported, The entire island looked as if it had been picked up 20,000 feet and then dropped. After 36,000 rounds of naval gunfire and artillery, along with sizable air attacks, pummeling the island, LCI gunboats were on the move again, tossing rockets into the mix. At 9 a.m., Turner unleashed his landing force. Colonel Curtis O'Sullivan's 184th Regiment headed towards Beach Red 1, while Colonel Mark Logie's 32nd Regiment hit Beach Red 2. Each beach was covered by a strong point, though these were mostly obliterated, with only a few pillboxes surviving. Both regiments landed at 9.30 a.m., finding weak opposition, allowing their artillery support to start smashing 200 yards ahead of their positions. The Americans were met with light motors and automatic fire from surviving pillboxes, but many were able to take shelter behind the wrecked ruins of a seawall. Meanwhile, as more Hamtracks pulled up, they were hampered by wreckage and debris, causing congestion. The reefs also hindered where they could approach, but by 1122, the first four waves of both battalions were ashore all within 15 minutes. Very impressive. Then they began to advance inland against light resistance. 
Logie's 1st Battalion managed to reach the western edge of the west area by 11.30. Meanwhile, O'Sullivan's 3rd Battalion came face-to-face -face with a network of several pillboxes still containing live Japanese in spite of the heavy preliminary bombardment. These were silenced in short order in a series of almost simultaneous actions in which many varieties of weapons were used. Two infantrymen of Company K, Private Parvi Raspberry and Private Paul Roper, had landed near the left of Red Beach 1 and had to run about 25 yards inland when they came under heavy fire from one of the pillboxes in the area. Quickly taking shelter in a shell hole, they started lobbing grenades at the enemy position about 15 yards ahead of them. The Japanese merely threw the grenades back, and the volley kept up until a flamethrower unit was brought forward. That too proved ineffective. The flames only hit the box and bounced back. Finally, Private Raspberry got out of his foxhole, crawled to within about five yards of the pillbox, and threw in white phosphorus smoke grenades. This flushed several Japanese from their cover into the open positions where they could be taken with rifle fire. Those who weren't hit ran back into the pillbox. Raspberry then threw more white phosphorus grenades in until none were left. By the end of it, eight of the enemy had been killed. At this juncture, Sergeant Graydon Kickel of Company L was able to crawl up to a pillbox and get on top of it. He emptied his M1 rifle into it, killing the remainder of Japanese inside. To make doubly certain that the job was done, an amphibian tank was then brought forward to fire both of its flamethrowers and its 37mm guns into the aperture. Meanwhile, Logie's 1st Battalion got within 250 yards of Wilma Road by 12.20. An hour later, they fell upon a network of pillboxes. To the north, O'Sullivan's 3rd Battalion ran into some tough resistance again, but managed to link up with Logie's men at Wilma Road by 2.50 p.m. Behind the battalions were follow-up battalions who mopped up the area, and the reserves secured the beachheads. Logie and O'Sullivan's men then fought their way to Quagelines Airfield. Luckily for them, the Japanese had not established a defensive line across the width of the island. Instead, the bulk of them retired eastward, for their commander, Admiral Akiyama, had run into an early tragedy. Admiral Akiyama had left his bunker at one point to observe the front line, and he was killed by an artillery shell. At 325, the 1st Battalion was relieved by the 2nd Battalion, who began an attack against the strong point known as the Canary. Some of these positions, which extended along each side of Wallace Road, were defended by the Japanese who had ducked and crawled through rubble heaps and bunkers in such a way, Lieutenant John Young, commanding Company E, became convinced they were using connecting tunnels to do so. The fighting went on for over an hour, but not more than 10 enemy dead could be counted above ground. Company E continued through a litter of small works, moving so slowly that it became necessary to commit Company F which undertook a flanking movement at the left. The maneuver was intended to cut the strong point off, but the company promptly ran into fire that slowed its advance to about 50 yards in 30 minutes. It then became clear that the whole movement had to be stopped. The attack was consequently broken off at 6 o'clock, and defensive positions were organized for the night. To the north, O'Sullivan's 3rd Battalion ran into a large underground shelter network with defenses. Their advance was temporarily blocked by a fuel dump ignited by artillery fire, but they eventually pushed on another 500 yards before halting at 6 o'clock for the night. Meanwhile, Logie's 2nd Battalion broke off their attack halfway up the length of the unfinished runway and dug in for the night themselves. By the end of February the 1st, approximately 450 of the dead Japanese were counted in the zone of the 184th, and this regiment was also responsible for the capture of 10 out of the 11 prisoners taken that day. 
A large share of the enemy casualties was attributed to the heavy bombardment from the ships and aircraft and from the artillery based on Carlson. Estimates made by assault troops and others, including some doctors, following the assault, indicated that the preparatory bombardment caused about 50 to 75 percent of all the Japanese casualties on Kwajalein Island. It truly was a colossal bombardment. The Americans would suffer only 21 deaths and 87 wounded. Over on Roy Namur, Admiral Connolly's LSTs entered the lagoon at the first light to provide the Amtraks an easier ride. Naval ships, artillery, and aircraft began smashing the island. The Marines saw some delays, but Colonel Lewis Jones' 23rd Marines began their run at Roy at 1150. Covering them, amphibian tanks sought hull defilade positions and concentrated their 37mm fire at Wendy Point Blockhouse, which could deliver flanking fire on the assault waves. The 1st and 2nd Battalions hit the beaches at 1157, landing and immediately began to push 300 yards inland. Meanwhile, Colonel Franklin Hart's 24th Marines bound for Namur were assigned the tractors of the 10th Amphibian Tractor Battalion that had participated in the preceding day's actions. The troubles that had beset the 10th Amphibian Tractor Battalion on D-Day were titanic. They had been launched too far from the line of departure in the first place. They had to buck adverse winds and unexpectedly choppy seas. Radio failures had tremendously complicated the problem of control, causing still further delays and much unnecessary travel through the water. All of this spelled excessive fuel consumption, and many of the tractors ran out of gas before the day was even over. For an LVT, to run out of fuel in choppy seas was unusually disastrous. This model, the LVT-2, shipped water easily, and its bilge pumps could not be manually operated. Thus, when the gasoline supply was gone, the vehicle could not be pumped out and would usually sink. In addition, many of the tractors of the 10th Battalion had not been released from their duties on D-Day until after dark. Thus, they were unable to get back to their mother LSTs for refueling and had spent the night on various outlying islands. Thus, as the hour for descending on Namur approached, the 24th Marines could muster only 62 out of their 110 tractors that had been assigned to them. Thus, a hurried call was sent out for some LCVPs to make up the difference. After a lot of scrambling, the 2nd and 3rd Battalions were reorganized and on their way to Namur. Hart's 2nd Battalion hit Beach Green 2 at 11.55. They faced anti-tank ditches across the narrow beach, causing a large congestion. Hart's 3rd Battalion made it to Green 1 at 12, and his K and I companies immediately advanced north. Meanwhile, Jones' battalion secured Wendy Point, facing very little opposition. Encouraged by the lack of resistance, the Marines began a rather disorganized dash across the island. They stormed across the runway without orders to do so, all guns ablazing. Tanks and infantry hastily charged in a disorder, successfully driving the surviving and terrified Japanese further north. Jones managed to gain control over his units and brought them back to assembly points to coordinate further attacks. The re-assault of Roy kicked off at 3.30 against a very dazed enemy still trying to recover from the first attack. The 2nd Battalion pushed north towards Estelle Point, while the 3rd Battalion hit Nancy Point. Enemy resistance was being rapidly annihilated. Estelle Point was secured by 5 p.m., while Nancy Point would be taken by 6. After Nancy Point was secured, Jones declared Roy secure as well. Meanwhile, Hart's F Company unknowingly breached a torpedo warhead bunker and began throwing satchel charges into its hull. 
The structure was obliterated by a massive explosion that would detonate two other ammunition bunkers nearby. Blocks of concrete, palm trees, wood, torpedo warheads, and other debris rained down all over the island, covering most of the island with smoke and dust. Twenty Marines were killed and a hundred men were wounded. The enormous explosion disrupted the 2nd Battalion's assault, causing further delays. Hart's 3rd Battalion enjoyed much more success, but heavier resistance as the Japanese defenders took advantage of all the rubble and dense brush tossed around that they could hide behind. By 7.30 p.m., Hart ordered his men to dig in, and during the night, the Japanese began their classic infiltration tactics. The greener troops amongst the men began indiscriminately firing throughout the night. The next morning, light tanks broke a Japanese counterattack as the Marines advanced another 50 yards. Hart then launched his main attack at 9 a.m., with the 3rd Battalion rapidly securing Nora Point by 11 a.m. Tank support for the 2nd Battalion arrived an hour late, but they still managed to push towards Natalie Point by 12.15, where the two battalions would link up. Mop-up operations continued in the rear, but the island was declared secure at 2.18 p.m. For their first operation, Schmidt's 4th Marine Division suffered 206 killed, 617 wounded, and 181 missing. 3,472 Japanese would be found dead with 51 captured and 40 Korean laborers surrendered. To the south, after aerial, artillery, and naval bombardment, Roulette launched a tank-supported attack at 7.15 a.m. O'Sullivan's 2nd Battalion advanced north against weak resistance, while Logie's 2nd Battalion continued to fight through the Canary Strongpoint. Advancing through destroyed pillboxes with tanks at the forefront, O'Sullivan's men were able to reach Carl Road at the eastern end of the airfield by 10.40 a.m. Meanwhile, Logie's men reduced the canary and advanced rapidly until they reached the deadly Cat Strongpoint. Here they faced tiers of well-conceived defensive works, taking many lives until they also reached Carl Road at 1040. Now the Americans were facing the main defensive system on the island. In front of it lay a deep tank trap connected to long rifle trenches. Beyond all this was anti-tank ditches and an elaborate organized set of defensive positions called Corn Strongpoint. These Americans were in for a hell of a time. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you're still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there, I just released the second episode in my series on Ishiwara Kanji. This one titled, Manchu Kuo, How to Build a Puppet State. That series used to be an exclusive to my Patreon, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. Over there, you can find more than 11 exclusive podcasts at this point. This month's exclusive podcast is me answering the question, why did the Japanese army perform so many atrocities during World War II? It's a rather dark and deep episode. Please check it out. Operation Flintlock went off with a terrifying bang, seeing the combined firepower of land, air, and sea tossed against the Marshall Islands. The Americans had made easy and quick work of the smaller islands but now they were face to face with a truly formidable defensive position that was sure to cause them some real headaches.